Hello, welcome to Eatbox, the diet in the paintings of the Song Dynasty. Before I start the episode today, I'd like to thank you all again for tuning in. It's been a great pleasure to have you all the way. We've come to the fourth episode, and if you haven't listened to the previous three episodes in which I talked about tea, sweets, and lychee fruit, don't worry. There are links below the video on YouTube, and you are welcome to click and subscribe this channel. Last, if you like this online curation so much, please don't hesitate to cast your vote for me during twenty-first October till fourth November. That's enough about me. This whole broadcast and curatorial wouldn't exist without the National Palace Museum. And now, with me, Carmen Ju, your host, on with the show. Today, I'm presenting something very hearty for all holidays: pastries. You wouldn't believe this, but I really want to share this with you. One of my mother's sisters, my aunt, is an expert on making traditional Chinese pastries. She makes the best pastries in the world, inventing new flavors and fillings. And she never goes to cooking school—not one day. It's all her studying, trials and errors. During the Moon Festival this year, she sent us a box of her own made moon pastries. There are six with two flavors of sesame curry and minced meat with lard. Look at how beautiful the pastries were baked. There is one thing I also want to share with you, and that is the Dajia Flaky Taro Pastry. They do shape a little like buns. Some friends of mine said it reminded them of cannoli. This is what I then asked him to pack them when he leaves Taiwan. Dajia, the coastal town in Taichung City, is famous for taro, and that's why this pastry is so delicious. Flaky with smooth taro filling, best when freshly baked. You can't miss this treat when you visit Dajia. Do you know where to shop for pastries, especially when you don't have someone as talented as my aunt? Well, certainly this is no problem for the people in the Song Dynasty. This brings us today's painting, "Up the River During Qingming," painted by Zhang Ziduan. This scroll can be divided into several major parts, including the rustic setting at the beginning, which is on the right, the arched bridge and the market, the city wall and surroundings, and Lake Jinming. Take a magnifier. On a closer examination, you would see how detailedly each person, whether he or she is a commoner or a royal, is painted with different expressions and attire that match their professions and social status. We see merchants and vendors laboring in the market, carrying loads of goods and serving trays of food, and we also see some comical scenes among the people, like there is a horse running wild, dashing into the crowd. What is most exciting is probably what's happening in the river. A heavily loaded boat is almost crashing into the bridge, fully packed with people and carriages. What a dangerous moment, especially seeing how horrified and anxious the people are. Turning our eyes back to the market, this is truly like a map that points us the way. Having read the books written by people surviving the war in the early 12th century, the words depicted a rich and highly developed society that boasted flourishing commercial activities and a staple life. The words match the meat painting, 
alleys and streets, stores and booths, people of all trades, restaurants and diners. I couldn't ride on that classic GMC twelve and go back, but I could imagine a comfortable life with convenience. I'm not sure how many of you out there around the world know this painting, but it is a household name widely known, just like La Mona Lisa or Beethoven's Symphony Number、no. Nine. It's the most prominent painting for those who wish to study the livelihood of the Song Dynasty. Such monumental painting wouldn't celebrate such fame if without people imitating it. And surely, nowadays, art historians have counted at least thirty copies around the world. This is just the number of collections officially preserved in museums, and we are not sure how many of private collections are not in calculation. The Ta- National Palace Museum in Taipei have seven copies, while the Beijing boasts a ten. The painting I'm showing you, although labeled a Zhang Ziduan's own work, is probably an impression done during the Ming Dynasty. It's smaller, and some details, like the materials of the walls around the city, is not accurately painted. The largest imitated work in Taipei should be the collaborative work done by the five painters during the Qing Dynasty, which proudly lays on a thirty-seven feet nine inches long scroll. Let's get back to the pastries, shall we? There are at least two main streams when it comes to Chinese pastries. One is gao, and the other is bing. And before I dig in the yums, some words I like to clarify. In this episode, for gao, I'd roughly call it cake, and for bing, I'd say pastry or patty. Gao or cake. Is traditionally made with flour and water, without milk. The flour is first made with dried rice, millet, sticky rice, or wheat, depending on the area where you harvest. Mix the flour with water and steam the mixture, and you would have cake. Notice the heating is not by baking, most commonly, but rather steaming, especially with water bathing around. The cake would be puffy, rising with some moisture, and this method is still seen in today's Taiwan and a lot of Southern East Asia. In Taiwan, where I grew up, a common rice cake is what we make during the Lunar New Year. The batter of rice flour and water would have brown sugar, and then we steam the batter in small bowls. A good rice cake should be puffed with the top. Evenly cleaving into four or five cloves like flour, the good ones would serve a tribute to the ancestors and gods. And what's better, if you can't finish all the rice cake after you worshiping the gods, you can slice it and fry the slices. Some people, like my family, prefer to eat the fried slices with soy sauce, and some prefer to coat it with white sugar. This is a great way to deal with leftover. In Ulin Jiu Shi, a book profiling the daily lives of the Song Dynasty, there is a chapter dedicated to an eclectic array of cake. 
糖糕、蜜糕、素糕、栗糕、豆糕。If this is not enough, the author went on counting 真糖糕、枫糖糕、小蒸糕。He's not the only one that expressed his observations of cake. In 商家清供 a journal written by Lin Hong, we saw an expert talking about a cake called Guanghan Gao. Now. If you are familiar with the legend of Chang'e and the Moon, you surely would know this cake is for autumn, and might have something to do with Osmanthus tree, as the name Guanghan suggests not only the palace on the moon, but also the Osmanthus tree being planted in front of the palace. Yes, indeed, Guanghan Gao is made with grinding dried sweet osmanthus flowers and knead it with flour and licorice water. Eat it after steaming the dough. I'm not sure how this cake would taste, as Lin Hong did not talk about the flavor. It seems more like an emblem of autumn. I'd like to distract your attention for a moment and have you take a look at this incredible calligraphy. Zhao Mengfu, a leading artist best known for his painting and calligraphy, has written this amazing work that says, "Thank you very much for the flower cake and the tangerines. I thank you with only a few words." Zhao Mengfu. So, what's that huagao he wanted to thank for? I tried to inquire in the ancient scrolls about what exactly Zhao Mengfu is indicating here. But to no avail. This is only my assumption that the huagao here actually refers to chongyang gao. The reason is the fruit that was mentioned together with the cake, which is tangerine or mandarin. Chongyangjie is on the ninth day of the ninth month in the lunar calendar, and this is the season when tangerines turn from green to a ripened yellow. Huagao literally means flower cake. But there isn't any flower. Instead, it's the decoration on top that shapes like a flower. In both Wulin Zhou Shi and Mengliang Lu, it is indicated that the Song people steamed the cake with a sugar coating and decorated the top with shredded pork, lamb, or duck meat. Inside the cake, some would mix sweetened chestnuts, spices, and honey. The full cake would have little colorful flags pinned on top, looking cheerful and celebratory. Pastries, on the other hand, is a bit more complicated if compared to the baking of cake. If there's one thing I learned after watching seasons of the BBC Bake Off comp- competition, that is the real trick to make a good flaky pastry: butter. It doesn't matter if you are making a Chinese, French, Italian, or baklava. You want the pastry to look like an open book with beautiful layers. Put butter, and it doesn't matter if it's butter or lard or fat. Just make sure there's enough oil. Now, where to get all those oil if you lived in the 11th century China or even earlier? We do know that during the Han Dynasty, Zhang Qian, an envoy sent to today's Central Asia and as south as India, as a remarkable man with many servants and officials to travel with, this expedition has brought China produce we now take for granted every day, and even though they were originally cultivated in the mainland China, one of the produce brought back was sesame. 
the ancient Chinese would later discover the great amount of oil they could extract from the sesame seeds, furthermore impacted the culinary arts. After a thousand years in Dongjing Menghualu, I read that Hubing was similar to today's Shaobing, which is a patty of flour salt, soy sauce, and oil, sprinkled with lots of sesame and baked until crispy golden. There's nothing more satisfactory than waking up in a beautiful Sunday morning and smelling the fresh baked hubing. There are lots of recipes with the name Bing during the Song Dynasty, but if limited within large and baked dough, we have Hei Bing, which is thin like paper but stretch, and people eat it with spring onions and a light brush of soy sauce. The name Bing also suggested that other powder be mixed in the flour before kneading, like Mei Hua Tang Bing. Whose flour is a mixture of powder of plum flowers and Indian sandalwood. In this episode, we've talked about cake and pastries, but there's one thing worth our attention, and that's bao. When I was in my fourth year in college, I had this one class in which we were talking about American Chinese cuisine. Our professor later on introduced her pupils the Bauhaus, which I immediately loved. Not just the ingenuity of the name, but also the fact that I was and still I am a big fan of Bao. In Bauhaus, the restaurant was made famous with Taiwanese guabao, but that doesn't mean Bao always look like that. In fact, take one guabao back to the 11th century, the Song Dynasty. The people then would probably call it a mantel. Contrary to what we think today, mantel had fittings back then. There were recipes that showed off different flavors like xuanxian, rosi, and luobo, which means carrot. The painting we see now was allegedly painted in the Yuan Dynasty, and the bao or mantel shaped more like what we call baozi today. Pastries, cake, and bao sure have come a long way, and each place boasts its signature bake. My hometown would always proudly present Taiyangbing and Dajia Yutou Su as the most popular mosbai. But of course, there are just so many pastries I haven't yet known. What's your ideas for the best cake and pastries? Let me know. Thank you very much for tuning in today. I'll see you in the last episode, in which we will talk about why. Eat Park: The Diet in the Paintings of the Song Dynasty is a podcast produced and hosted by Carmen Chu. The music is provided by YouTube Audio Library, a free database where you can make use of no copyright music. This podcast is also released with videos on YouTube, where you can find the links in the show notes below. Each park is part of the 2020 online curation competition held by the National Palace Museum, and you can hear this broadcast on the NPN websites, YouTube, Apple Podcast, and Spotify.